Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. So we as a church family have been reading through the New Testament in 90 days. How's that going, everybody? Yeah, okay, good. A little... Last week we were maybe a little less enthusiastic, but this week we're like, we're back on the wagon, baby. That's good. Hey, if, if, uh, if, you, if you missed, uh, that's fine. Just pick back up. Let's keep going. Keep going. It's, uh, what matters is the repetition and that we um, continue to intake and uh, lots of good stuff um, out ahead of us today. Um, so we've been working our way through this, and in light of um, kind of the reading that we did this past week, I wanted to set before you probably the question that I get most often, um, and that is, how do I know uh, that I'm a Christian? In other words, is there any assurance for me um, that, I, that I am a follower of Jesus? And so because uh, that is the question I get most often, I thought we'd take a run at it here. First uh, John is the book where we will be, First John chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can open there. If you need a Bible that you want to put in your lap, uh, there's some on the sides of the tech booth. If you're a user of the Bible app, then feel free to open up the app and find our live event uh, and track along that way. So um, uh, so that is the question that I get most often. How do I know? And and, uh, 1 John, the book, is written, I mean, quite literally, he says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the entire point of the book. And so we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2 and, um, and work our way through uh, several verses together. A uh, couple of things that I wanted to say on the front end. Number one, um, uh, as we ask these questions and stuff, if you start getting some no answers and you want to have further conversation about that, we would absolutely uh, love to do so. Uh, but also, uh, man, I just don't want you to put your um, trust in the wrong thing. So here, if you will, are some insufficient um, sources. How do, you, how do you know that you are a follower of Jesus here are some places that some people put theirs, and I'm telling you, these aren't bad. They're just insufficient. Number one, uh, that would be uh, kind of past experiences. I walked an aisle. I said a prayer. I uh, went through this. I had a moment at camp. I signed a card, um, any number of things, and here's what I would say about that. Uh, those are all good things. They, they can be great things even. Um, but there are some of you, because of your upbringing, uh, you don't have that moment. Um, and there are some... Uh, Christians whose name I could say, they're, you would call them famous, authors and so forth, who um, they didn't have that particular moment. So what, what do you do if you forget or if you don't remember or if you think, gosh, it seems like I've done this multiple times because I've kind of gone away and come back and gone away and come back. What, what Past experiences, it's not that they're bad. They're just... Um, insufficient. Secondly, a family connection. I grew up around church. My parents took me to church. Uh, you know, my family is a Christian family. Um, all of that's really important. We want um, you to grow up in a Christian family here. Or if you didn't, we want to uh, establish a new family tree for you, which is why we do some of the things that we do around here. But a family connection is not enough. Is it good? Absolutely. But it's insufficient. It's not bad. It's just insufficient. And I'll just ask you this question. Uh, if that's your kind of hope, I grew up around church, my parents are Christians. If that's your hope, what happens when your dad, the deacon, walks out? If you tie your faith to that, what happens when that goes away? That's, that's my story. So well, what do you do in that moment? 
a family connection. Thirdly, um, a, a religious rite. I was baptized. I was baptized as a baby. I was baptized. I, I you know, went through this or went through confirmation or any number of other expressions of that. Um, and that religious rite, um, I went to church, I pray, I read the Bible, I give money, whatever it may be. Um, those religious rites or religious rituals, um, uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 uh, kind of puts his finger on that. And he says, some of you will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy and cast out demons and do miracles in your name? I mean, those are all pretty awesome things to do, right? But I will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. So, so the, Jesus puts his finger on it and says, That's, those aren't bad to do those things. It's just insufficient because the, the measure of whether or not you are a follower of Jesus is whether you know him and he in that sense, knows you. So these are insufficient sources. Again, not bad, just insufficient. So what are better diagnostics, if you will, uh, to understand whether or not you are a follower of Jesus? I'll give you five questions this morning. They come right out of the text. There's a lot of stuff that uh, will pop up on the screen, as always. If you want to grab your phone and click it and uh, just take a picture, that's fine. Notes will be posted pre-Super Bowl, so you don't have to worry about that. Just promise. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So let's just pause right there. So here's question number one. Question one is, do I trust Jesus alone? Do I trust Jesus alone as my Savior? And alone is a key word right there. Why? Because there are people um, who try to deal with sin one of two ways, depending upon kind of your upbringing and experience. Number one, you can deal with your sin by trying to redefine it. That's part of what happens in chapter one. John takes some folks to task when he says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves. Chapter one, verse eight. And that, that's kind of our modern way of dealing with it. It's, it's just go, well, maybe one time it was sin. Maybe that was back in the day. Maybe whatever. But I, I'm, it's not sin anymore. That's kind of old stuff. Now, new. So redefining um, sin. Uh, the, the second way, though, is to deal with sin by trying to balance the scales. And if you grew up around a religious household or just are generally inclined towards justice and fairness in your own life, this may be you. Um, the, and the, the scale thing goes like this. Uh, hey, I know I've done some bad stuff. You know. It, it tips the scales against me. And so I'm going to load some good stuff onto this side to try to balance it out, right? I'm going to do my best to balance the scales. But the problem is the Bible is pretty clear about this. Galatians chapter 2, we read this several weeks ago now. Um, it, by no works of your own flesh, meaning like the things that you do, by no works of the law will anyone be justified, meaning you can't balance the scales. You can't. Why is that? Well, because you, you've mismeasured your offense. You think your offense is finite, and so if you do some good stuff that's finite, it'll balance. But the problem is, your offense is infinite. The, the goodness and glory of God is infinite. And so your sin, therefore, against an infinitely glorious God um, measures infinite weight. And so you can stack up all the finite you want to on this side, and it won't, it won't bring it to balance. And furthermore, it's not a matter of just bringing it to balance, folks. We got to have it the other way, right? We got to have it tipped in our favor. And so um, you can deal with sin by trying to balance the scales, but I'm telling you, it just won't work. There's no infinite offense that can be paid for by a finite offering. And if I try to redefine sin or if I try um, to deal with sin by doing my own thing here, balancing the scales, it's, it's all about me and it's not about God and it dishonors him. So back to chapter two, verse one, my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Does anybody feel the weight of that? Like John writes, so he's like, hey man, I don't want you to continue in these things. 
So you look back on your week and you think, oh man, I'm toast. <laughs> Anybody? I'm writing these things so you won't sin. Oh, John, please don't follow me around. But if anyone does sin, does that feel like relief to you? That feels like relief to me. I look over my shoulder and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I've done that. That's dumb. I'm writing so that you won't sin. But if you do, anybody qualify? If you do, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. To me, that's great news because I know that I sin. He's writing so that I won't, and I don't want to all the time, but sometimes I still mess it up, man. Sometimes I still have a wreck. And so what happens in that moment is we're kind of in the courtroom here. Judge is sitting there. The prosecutor's over here. He's got plenty of things to say about my life. And I'm over here at the defense table, and it's not me going, hey, Your Honor, Your Honor, I'd like to represent myself in this case. I have an advocate who's going to speak for me. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. But if you do, you have an advocate, a defense lawyer, somebody who is going to speak on your behalf, Jesus Christ, um, the righteous one. He is not advocating your innocence. He knows. But he is advocating your forgiveness. Why? Verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's a good Bible word. Maybe stick that one in your pocket and hold on to it. Break it out in conversation this week. You'll sound really, really smart. Propitiation means this. You remember our scales? We're over here, and there's an there's a infinite offense against the infinite glory of the infinite God. But Jesus, the infinite one, has stepped into our place. And so the propitiation not only pays the debt that we owed, but then he purchases favor for you and me. It's not a matter of just balancing the scales where Jesus goes, okay, now, don't mess this up. You don't want to tip back the other way, okay? Like, don't do that. Heaven's at stake. Jesus says, I've got it covered, man. You have a debt paid, amen and amen, but also favor has been purchased for you. I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. You know what that means? There's not a soul here today. I mean, you look back over your shoulder and you see the sins that you have. There's not a soul here today for whom your sin is greater than Jesus' death and atoning work. You you don't have anybody in your life. It doesn't matter their stripe. It doesn't matter their politics. It doesn't matter their skin color. It doesn't matter their particular version of sin that you do or don't like. You don't have someone in your life that Jesus sin, that, that has sin that is greater than the sacrifice and atoning work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Not for your sins only, for the whole world. I'll mention this later. We've been working, some of you know, with these Afghan refugees who are in. We've had some killer conversations, man, about faith and what it looks like what prayer means, who we pray to, all of this kind of stuff. You know what? Not a single one of them has sin greater than Jesus can atone for. Not a single one. Some of you have neighbors, friends, co-workers, classmates, people on the baseball field or soccer pitch or whatever. Not a single one has sin greater than the sacrifice of Jesus. I'm writing these things to, to you so that you won't sin, but if you do, You have an advocate, a defense lawyer, who will speak on your behalf with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole 
wide world. You, you want to know. If you know Jesus and if he knows you, if you're a Christian, start with that question. Do you trust Jesus and Jesus alone to be your Savior? Second question. Is, is my life marked by obedience to Jesus the King? Look down at verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. How do we know this? By this, if, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The, the Bible is pretty subtle right there, right? I mean, just kind of, no, man, you're a liar. Like, if you say that you are a, a person who loves and follows Jesus, and your life doesn't look like him, you need to look in the mirror and go, hmm. Um, verse 5, but who? keeps his word in him truly the love of god is perfected by this we may be sure that we are in him verse six whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked is my life marked by obedience to jesus the king here's the immediate response but nobody's perfect it's true i'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin but if you do he's already mentioned that the question is not who's perfect and who's not the question is when we sin do we obey because what are we supposed to do with our sin Try to hide it, stick it in a closet, sweep it under the rug. Go, hey, I'm sure this wasn't a be- that big of a deal to God. No, we're supposed to bring it to him. Just a couple of verses earlier, in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, purify us, take out of us all unrighteousness. Do you, do you run away with your sin? Do you try to make it right? Do you... Or do you bring it to him? Do you obey? When you, nobody's perfect, but do you obey when you do, when you do sin? You don't deny it. You confess it. To be clear here, we're not obeying him so that we can earn our relationship into him. You, you hear the language. If anyone does know him, then he obeys. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. If, if our life is centered around, if we are in the gravitational orbit, if you will, of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, then our life gets shaped by, marked by, circulates around that. May we get out of orbit every so often? It's true. Still shaped by his pull. Whoever says he abides in him, verse 6, ought to walk in the way he walks. I, I don't want to skip past this particular phrase, verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, uh, truly the love of God is perfected. Or some of you may have mature. It's true. I mean, mature love um, it has a kind of steady commitment to its beloved. Mature love, uh, you know, we can be high, we can be low, but I'm, I'm sticking with you on this. And, and, and it, it's true. It, it, there are times in our um, Christian walk where things are pretty high. Man, mountaintops. And there are times when it's pretty low. Ugh, what is going on with me? Are you even there, God? I'm glad you're not there because uh, I wouldn't want you to see what's going on. Real gritty. But here's the thing. If, if, if it's all gushy on top or if it's gritty on bottom there, either way, I mean, it just gives texture to this love that we have. The whole idea of this is that God's love would be in us and that would shape us, form us, um, and, and grow us so that we become mature. A couple of, three, now, it's been several years ago, 
Several years ago, we hosted a marriage conference, and a, a counselor and pastor named Chris Legg came, and he shared this particular um, thing here. I just want to point to it here. If you were in that, maybe you uh, remember this. Um, if you know, it's, it's been one of the most helpful things that I try to help people understand in, in marriage. Okay, so on the y-axis here, marital satisfaction. All you engineers will be thrilled that there's a graph on screen. Um, uh, on the x-axis there, the number of years uh, that you've been married. And so this is what happens. I know there are some newlyweds uh, in the room, or those who are going to be wed soon so you start off there everything is awesome right like once you get past which how to fold the socks and which way the toilet paper goes like once you get past that it's all amazing I mean like it's all beautiful it's all wonderful it's stars and fireworks and all that kind of stuff it's just awesome right and then it kind of crests there and it comes down and it, about year seven or so is where that bottom uh, thing is there anybody want to guess about what year seven happens there are toddlers. There are people who aren't cute and cuddling. They've long ago lost the cute cry, but they're still in diapers. And so you really struggle because they want to be in your bed and they want to walk with you like holding on to your leg. I mean, all of this kind of stuff, right? And they need you as much as they need, but they're also finding that they have a will and a personality that they can express much to your frustration. And chagrin. And that, that takes, that puts some friction between husband and wife. But then thankfully, they don't stay that way forever. Glory to God. Let the church say amen. 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 They don't stay that way forever. And so they take off and they begin to grow and mature and quit being little snot-nosed punks as much as they are. And they get to like nine and ten, which is an awesome stage. And you're like, man, I'm a good parent. Hey, you're alive. That's good. I'm a good parent. Right? And you play baseball or softball or soccer or whatever it may be. And you kind of like, this is amazing. I love this. And the marriage is a little bit easier um, for you and that kind of thing. And then the turn happens. And somewhere in between year 20 and 25, do you see the other bottom of the, see the other trough there of that little wave? Anybody guess this? Yes, exactly right. It's not that we don't love you teenagers. We do. But you're hormones with feet and we don't understand you sometimes, even though we lived it. So it's very difficult at times and you're worried more and you're caring more and you're trying to figure out how do you speak to this person who doesn't speak your language anymore and all this kind of stuff. And then um, once they become human again, and <laughs> it can, it, this is what I say, depending upon the stage of marriage, like it can, your marital satisfaction can take off from there. Really, it can why that? This is not a marriage sermon. Simply this. This could be our spiritual life in some ways also. Like, there are ups and there are downs. There are pluses and there are minuses. There are yes and, I mean, like, you have these moments that are mountaintop where everything in you just burst forth. God, yeah, God, thank you, God. You're good, God. You're amazing, God. And there are times where it's like, this is so hard. I'm pretty sure I'm getting up today. Pretty sure. You know what makes the difference between the top and the bottom, between the high and the low, between the like incredible emotional stuff and the grit? You know what helps people mature through that? I mean, you're talking about years of marriage and years of being shaped by the love that you have for one another. You know what 
What makes it? It's, it's commitment. It's the kind of commitment, that steadiness of commitment to one another. That's what shapes you. Folks, there is nobody on this planet who is more committed to you than Jesus is. So if you, if you want to know, if you want to know, if you are a follower of Jesus, just hear him say, I love you and I am committed to you through it all. And there will be highs and there will be lows, but I'm committed to you through it all. Our response is this kind of obedience that we talked about here. Our response is just putting our yes on the table. Now, I want to cheer and I want to encourage and just say, just as a whole, we as a church family, we have done pretty well at putting our yes on the table. To say yes to things um, from, well, from mission work, uh, long gone by, Harvey response, um, yes to this, yes to that. We have tried our best just to continually say yes. And I want to, just this week, as a matter of fact, um, we got a call, I don't know, Thursday or Friday. Um, they said, uh, from Catholic Charities, it's the group we've been working with, with our Afghan friends, and they've said, hey, look, do you want to host a shower, a, a baby shower, for 30 Afghan uh, women who are getting ready to have babies? And we're like, nah, man, we don't love people. Forget that. Yeah, of course, we're saying, yes, of course, it's the answer. Of course, yes. Because our yes is on the table, and who knows how God is going to use that to open doors for the gospel to go forward, not only in this generation, but the one come our yes is on the table so an amazon list went up and packages started arriving my 16 year old couldn't get out the door last night he just went to go pick up dog food he's like uh dad there's too many packages at the front door i can't get out literally that's what he said he had to go out the garage and come back in like yes that's the answer your life is it marked by yes do you obey jesus as king thirdly question number three do do you love do you love others Look at verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is the light, hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded it's blinded his eyes do you love others now just a couple of notes here um, this is especially it is not exclusively so but especially um, for, for church family stuff he calls them brothers I mean he's talking about family relationships here he's talking about those that we're connected to uh, because of who Jesus is do you love others especially those within the church family. Why in particular does that get highlighted? I think that gets highlighted because sometimes it's easier to love somebody who's outside than it is to love somebody inside. Sometimes it's easier to love somebody who's a little bit farther away than it is somebody um, who's close. So especially, not exclusively, but especially those in the church family. And then he, he does this kind of back and forth thing, this old commandment at the end of verse 7. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. What commandment is he talking about? He's talking about uh, from Leviticus, uh, the old commandment where it says, um, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And that was a uh, specific command for specific people at a specific time. But then he says this old commandment uh, at the same time. It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, meaning it is now expanded. Um, why, why is that? Uh, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away. True light is already shining. Has anybody gotten up early enough to see sun rises lately in this winter sky? Man, some of them have been beautiful. And you get that point where it's just dark and then all of a sudden it's just 
just turning light. And you start seeing, and it's beautiful. This is what he's talking about. That old commandment was kind of there for people, a specific people, in a specific place, at a specific time. But now that Jesus has come, what? That light is starting to shine. And we don't have to contain our love to some provincial group like we can love everybody. Do I love others? Do you want God's best for someone else? Or do you just want them to agree with you? Um, Do you want God's best for one another badly enough that you'll sacrifice in order to see that come in their lives? Do you love others? Question number four. Look at verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men. Uh, That would be young women, too. It's poetry here. Because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. Here's the fourth question. When you look at the trajectory of your life, not a particular moment, but the trajectory of your life, um, do you have a sense that you're growing? What, what is the trajectory of your spiritual journey? Do you have a sense that you are moving towards godliness. Look, look at how John writes this in this little poem here. He talks about little children. What, what does it know? I mean, what is true about little children here? He says, you know that your name, uh, excuse me, that your sins are forgiven and you know the father. So like you're starting off on the right foot. You are uh, forgiven of your sins and you know that you are in a relationship with God. And then there's growth from there to young men, to uh, that kind of adolescent, spiritual adolescence. And, and it's true sometimes, man, people struggle um, with adolescence spiritually as well. And what does it say about them? I'm writing to you, uh, young men, at the end of verse 13, because you have overcome the evil one. And then again, at the end of verse um, 14 there, the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. So there's, there's a maturity there. There's, hey, I don't have to surrender to everything that's kind of inside of me. I can, I'm growing. And then fathers, these kind of spiritual parents who are stepping in and making a difference, not only in, in their generation, but the generation to come. And what does he say about them? I'm writing to you, you know God. Like you know him. We've gone from, hey, I understand the basics, forgiveness, to, hey, I'm walking in victory, amen, to I know God. And nobody or nothing is going to take that away from me. And church family, listen to me. If you've been at this a while, there's nothing that we need more than spiritual moms and spiritual dads who know God, who step into a younger person's life, younger in the faith, although it could be younger in age, but step into a younger person's life and say, Let's walk together here for a little bit. I want to shape you. I want to help you. I want to answer your questions. I want to pray for you. I want to put my arm around you. Sometimes you'll need a headlock and a little noogie action. I didn't want to do that too. I want to be someone who's going to help you grow in the faith. There's no, no greater need in our generation than that right there. So you say, oh, well, you know, like I look at my life and, you know, up and to the right, I don't know. I don't know. 
some people think that's how it's supposed to go. It's just an easy progression. But the truth is, is that if you zoom in, it goes like this, right? You're like an AFib or something. You spiritually, you just, yeah. But if you pan the camera back enough, do, do you see a trajectory towards growth? And if you don't, or if you're not sure, is there somebody that you can ask? Do you have somebody who's close enough to you who can say, hey, look, I heard you say that. What did you mean by that? Are you sure you want to sound like that when you ask that question? Hey, I saw you do this. I just want to cheer you on to say, that was awesome. Good job. That's a step of maturity. That Man, you're really killing it right now. Hey, I know that you've given and given and given and you're exhausted. It may be okay to take a seventh day to take a breath and a nap and maybe have some good food so that you're ready for the days to come. Whatever it may be, is there someone that you can ask. It's one of the reasons, church family, why we say we want you in a circle. We want you in a small group, in a Bible study, in a Sunday school class, so that there are people who can look you in the eye, so there are people who know you and can ask those questions. Is there, or you can ask those questions of him. Is there someone that you can ask? Last thing. What love is resident? What love is resident in your heart? Verse 15. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What love has taken up residence um, in your heart? It could be worldliness, and that would express itself, like it says here uh, in verse 16, the desires of the flesh, kind of that lusting thing, these desires that get out of whack, um, desires uh, of the eyes, this covetousness, I see it, I want it, um, and the desires, excuse me, and pride um, in possessions. Uh, lust and covetousness and pride that objectifies people, that um, takes outcomes and says what, what matters most is that I get what I want. And so I magnify outcomes to, uh, to, at the cost of the people uh, involved and the means that it will take to get there. When people struggle, this is one of the things that you can look for. What love is resonant in my heart? Is it a love that looks like that? Or is it godliness? Instead of uh, the uh, lust or desires of the flesh, is there um, self-control? Is there joy in another? Instead of uh, uh, the the desires uh, of the eyes, is there an open-handedness to life? Instead of pride, is there humility? Godliness could be that. And last thing I'll say here, well, just... He says, don't love these things and don't let love for them consume you. Don't let love take up residence in your heart. Um, because number one, those are not from God. And number two, they're passing away. It's a bad investment. And here, here's where it comes down for you and for me. Like one will dislodge the other. Inevitably so. Inevitably, one will dislodge the other. Either your love for the world will dislodge God's love for you or vice versa. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. You can't serve two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other. Despise the one, be devoted to the other. You can't have it both ways, man. You can't have one foot on each. You can't do it. You can't do it. One will inevitably dislodge the other. So you, the love of God, the love that he has for you can, 
can take over your life and push this other stuff, dislodge this other stuff. The first house Jenny and I lived in, it was a parsonage. I was the preaching assistant at this church. They had a parsonage. They let us live there. It's pretty awesome. Teaching school and stuff. It had this monster weed patch in the back. So if as a first time, like we had done, only done apartments before. So as a first time, like home liver, I won't say homeowner, home resident. Um, I'm like weeds in the back. What do you do? You get weed killer. So that's what I did. I went out there, double barrel, man, roundup. It's awesome. Until it wasn't. Because then we went from all these weeds in the backyard to a large dead spot in the middle of the yard. Huh, didn't think that went through. So we become, um, we move on a couple of years later, and we become homeowners. First home we bought had a big patch of clover dead in the middle of the front yard. Anybody a fan of clover? Two of you, great. You can have it. I, I mean, the rest of it, I mean, I just hate it. So I'm like, hey, you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to go, you know, roundup guy. I'm not going to be that guy. This is before, I know this dates me, but before you could ask the Google machine, like, hey, how do you do this? Like before YouTube, I mean, like all of that. that so I had to go down to the like lawn and garden store and figure out what I was supposed to do. And the guy said, hey, look, the best thing you can do is just have healthy grass. I'm like, that I can work on. Little fertilizer, mowing, all that kind of stuff. Mow and fertilize, mow and fertilize, water, make sure it's all. And that clover went from about this big to this big to this big to this big to eventually gone. Why? Because what was tended, what was cared for, what was promoted eventually choked out everything that was bad and wasn't supposed to be there. Church family, listen. The love that God has for you, if you will receive the love that God has for you, it can dislodge, it can push out, it can move out of your heart some of these other things that maybe you feel like, I'm just struggling, man. You let the love of God take up residence in you. It will dislodge some things that you don't want to be there. I want to ask this question as we close. What, like, what then are you supposed to do? And the answer is, just say yes to him. For, for some of you, it looks like saying yes to faith. You put your trust in Jesus today, and I promise you, you are not carrying any sin, none, that his death and resurrection cannot deal with. His love for you is that power. For some of you, that's your yes. For some of you, it's related to us as a church family. You want to engage or re-engage. Or for some of you, you need to get baptized like the Jordans did. You, you need to show and just, this is my moment where I'm saying, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is my yes to God. For some of you, you've got an area of your life where the greatest thing that you could do is let the love of God dislodge some of the junk that's kind of blocking right there. Some of the places where you feel like I can't, I can't get it to move. The love of God can move it and you need to let him, whatever that looks like. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to let you ponder a moment what that may be for you. And as we pray and as we think, and we'll come back with a song of response and then give you an opportunity, um, 
give you an opportunity to stand and sing or maybe just sit and reflect, whatever it may be. Let's take a moment, though, and let's pray. And you ask the question, Lord, what am I supposed to do? What does my yes look like in this moment? You ask that question. Um, Father, it's, it's just my sense, and I'll um, set it before you in this way. It's my sense that maybe some folks are really struggling with their yes right now. And so over all of the folks here, for those watching online, God, give them a grace to say yes to you. Whatever that looks like and whatever it means. Bring them to faith. Bring them into uh, a church family. Give them some some encouragement, some step to take. Let them know, Father, that your love is steady for them. They can trust you today. No matter their situation or their place, May yes be their answer. God, give us grace for that. That's what I ask now in Jesus' name. Amen.